really what we were doing is setting up a system that would protect the safety rights and welfare of those subjects now in research who happen to be in harm's way and in theater. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Dr. Laura Broch is a retired Army Nurse Corps Colonel. She is currently the Assistant Vice President of Research Initiatives and Compliance at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. In this episode, Dr. Broch describes her pathway into military medicine and how she became the nursing research consultant to the Surgeon General. She talks about the role the Medical Research and Materiel Command played early in OAF and OEF and how a plan was developed to ethically conduct research in the theaters of combat. Dr. Broch also explains how the concept of theater clinical practice guidelines was developed and how these have evolved over the past 20 years. She describes how the military brings novel treatment modalities for combat casualty care to the battlefield and determines safety and efficacy. Find out more about Dr. Broch on her website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Colonel, Dr. Laura Broch to Wardox. Laura, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's truly an honor. Dr. Broch, tell us your pathway to joining military medicine. Okay, I was a, a transplant clinical nurse specialist and on the kidney transplant team at University of Chicago. And I had the opportunity to give papers at a couple of Euro transplant meetings. And during those trips, I became very enamored of Europe and decided that I wanted to live there. So I was looking for a way I could work as a nurse and live in Europe. And a colleague of mine had joined the Army the year before. And she was stationed at the Frankfurt Medicine. And she told me, you just have to do this. It's pretty incredible. So I went to the Army recruiter, and um, they offered me Heidelberg, Germany as my initial assignment. And because I was an experienced nurse with a master's degree, they brought me on as a captain with some constructive credit. And I signed on for a three-year tour at the Heidelberg Medac. Um, I was planning to stay as long as they would keep me in Europe. So tell us a little bit about that assignment. What, what kind of things were you doing? Were you doing the same things you had been doing in, in the civilian world? And how did that influence your decision to stay or leave the Army? Well, interesting. It was way not what I was doing in the civilian world. I was a transplant coordinator. I was on call 24-7, six days a week. And it was a very high up tempo. When I got to Heidelberg, which was a small medic, it had one med surge ward. And the Army Nurse Corps' position was, no matter how experienced you were or what degrees you had, you were going to come in as a clinical staff nurse. And so that was fine with me. I decided I would be an awesome clinical staff nurse. And after about almost a year, they asked me if I'd move to the ED and work as the assistant chief nurse. I had worked on the ED at University of Chicago during my master's program. So after about a year there, they asked me if I would take over as the chief nurse of the Mannheim Health Clinic, which was a real large health clinic in Germany. It had a 24-7 ED. 
It had multiple clinics, physical therapy, peds. It served a big troop concentration in Mannheim. So I stayed there for two years. And then despite wanting to extend, extend, the Army uh, had me come back and go to the residence uh, AMED advanced course. So those years in Europe were pretty amazing. It was the end of the Cold War and the Berlin Wall was still up and the threat obviously was the Soviet Union. And we engaged in annual reforger exercises, which was a huge rehearsal of a Soviet invasion through the Fulda Gap in Germany. But it was there that I really found an army family with the values that I believed in. And I thought, I'll stay in as long as it's working for me. And I asked to go to Walter Reed after that because I like a busy med center. And the Army consented to do so. So you mentioned that you had been delivering research papers to Europe prior to joining the Army. And so for people who want some perspective, we're, the time before your military career, you were a nurse from 1979 to 1983. But as you progressed in leadership, you took on several roles in that research that you had previously done. Was that your passion or did that spin off your background in transplant care? I had worked in transplant since actually 74. I went directly to the transplant unit out of when I got my bachelor's degree. And in my master's program, I had done research with looking at the quality of life of transplant recipients. So I had always been interested in the outcomes of patient care. And so I did take a little break when I went to Europe, but it still was something I was very interested in. So when I PCSed from the advanced course to Ramsey, eventually they made me the head nurse in the transplant unit. And then Desert Storm began. And I got put in as a role as a clinical nurse specialist in critical care and then for all the med surge units. And we were very concerned about patient outcomes then. So throughout my nursing career, I've been very interested in quality improvement, performance improvement, looking at what impacts patient outcomes. So later on in 2000, you moved from being the chief of surgical nursing services to the nursing research consultant to the U.S. Army Surgeon General and chief of nursing research service at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. What were the research priorities for military medicine pre-9-11 and how did that change after 9-11? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. I'd say pre-9-11, again, my interests and in, in, in the Army Nurse Corps, we were interested in things like nurse staffing ratios, what impacted patient outcomes and med errors, patient falls, pressure ulcers. We were also concerned at, with nurses' job satisfaction and retention. So a lot of my work there at Walter Reed was around looking at setting up large data sets looking at patient outcomes and nursing outcomes. And then post 9-11, I, I would say it's kind of a blur for me post 9-11 through OIS because post 9-11 took a while, but we started to get casualties from Afghanistan. And when I look at what our nursing research community was interested looking at, it really pivoted to deployment-related issues like clinical knowledge needed in the operational environment, readiness competencies. For our Air Force colleagues, it was the CCAT issues in like invasive pressure monitoring during aeromedical transport. And 
maintaining skin integrity during prolonged evacuation. So it did take a bit, but we did pivot to more readiness-related issues. So you're now involved with identifying new technologies that are being used on the battlefield for potentially some issues that weren't seen in previous wars, such as rapid evacuations, but over long distances. And so you were assigned to the U.S. Army Medical Research and Materiel Command. Tell us about that transition that you had going to that department. And how did the military go about identifying these investigational products? And what was the process for fielding them in a safe manner? Well, this is kind of an interesting story. And I would say I didn't anticipate being assigned to MRMC at Fort Detrick. I was only two years into my chief of nursing research assignment. And this was sort of one of my dream jobs in the Army Nurse Corps was to be at Walter Reed as chief of nursing research. So my corps chief told me that I was needed at Fort Detrick and I thought my assignment was going to be with the congressionally directed medical research program. However, I was the JACO project officer at Ramsey at the time, and we weren't looking good for our JACO inspection. So my commander asked, well, asked me to stay and finish the, the JACO visit. And so I ended up going on 30 September 2002 to be assigned as the director of the Office of Regulatory Compliance and Quality for MRMC. And I really didn't know anything about MRMCI. And that assignment changed my career. I went from being a researcher myself to somebody whose job it was to protect human subjects, make sure that the way we conducted animal research was ethical and compliant. But my biggest, I think, challenge was to make sure all that happened but we got to, yes, we got to be able to enable the research that needed to be done. And so that was the transition to Fort Detrick. When I got there, it was a fall, beginning winter of 2002. And MRMC was supporting the Army as it prepared for the invasion of Iraq. And there was a concern, as you well remember, that the Iraqis not only had chemical weapons, but that Saddam Hussein was actively building WMDs to include biologic threat agents like anthrax and botulinum toxin. So the only countermeasures available to prevent or treat the effects of those agents were investigational products that had been developed at MRMC, largely for lab worker protection at RID, at USAMRID. So in looking back in my notes, in July of 2002, the Army Surgeon General had ordered MRMC to stand up something called a Special Medical Augmentation Response Team, acronym SMART, for investigational new drugs. And the team was to be capable of rapidly responding and to train organic assets and or administer these investigational products to a deployed force in compliance with regulatory requirements. Obviously, I'm reading that. And I'm reading it because it was laden with a lot of responsibility. First of all, this was prevention and treatment, not research, but it required the use of investigational products. And if you remember after Desert Storm and during Desert Storm, the Army of the Forces had administered paradistigmine bromide as a nerve agent pretreatment. They had actually administered some doses of botulinum toxoid. And all those were investigational at the time. 
And then in the subsequent years, there was great concern about the possible relationship of those investigational products to Gulf War illness. And the FDA had done a deep dive on the use of those products and in the interim years had developed some additional regulations about the military's use of investigational products. The military also developed some additional regulations about the use of investigational products. All that to say that the smart IND team was really charged with taking these products to theater and doing it right. And I will say the FDA worked very closely with us because we, well, the smart team, IND team consisted of about 20 of the who's who of the Army ID docs. We had research nurses from USAMRIT. We had NCOs. We had medical service officers. And our job was to write these protocols in a manner that the FDA could live with and that were actually feasible for administration in a environment. And that meant that we really had to make them as lean as possible with minimum reporting of additional non-essential information. What products are we talking about? What, what were the investigational products that you were trying to get out and make available for units deploying to Iraq with this potential threat of ChemBio? Well, first it was botulinum immunoglobulin and bottoxoid vaccine. So this would be a way to vaccinate, let's say, troops who might be asked to go in and disable a chemical, I mean, a biologic production plant. So the idea was to administer these products to provide protection. In the event, however, there would be exposures like to botulinum toxin, the notion would be to set up a bot treatment center. That would involve immunoglobulin, it would involve actually ventilators and other supportive mechanisms to get people through those exposures. So you're the director of the Office of Research Protections at Fort Detrick for 17 years. What about some of the advancements that came about in surgical products like combat gauze and chitosan powder and all those other products? How did those get fielded in a safe manner? It was such a high up-tempo right there at the beginning of the war. And so, you know, I have to bring in the name John Holcomb. He had been assigned as the commander of the Institute for Surgical Research. He quickly pivoted that whole operation to focus on wartime trauma care. And in the early 2003, 2004, et cetera, there were, the tourniquet was starting to evolve as something that needed refinement and needed to be standardized. The chitosan dressing, there had been a, a quick clot, was a, a, another hemostatic agent that had some side effects that really weren't working for everyone. So we quickly, in pretty much every lane, started to look at products that could be either rapidly transitioned out of, they were available as COTS products, or were there things that we could work with industry to develop and deliver? Now, FDA approval is not a short process, but I will say the FDA worked very closely with us to get products to theater. We really didn't take very many investigational products to theater. You know, what I really like to share is why we needed to set up a capability in theater 
to conduct research. And research, first of all, being just direct observational collection of data. The 31st Combat Support Hospital went in initially into Baghdad. And you remember at the beginning of the war, there were many, many casualties. I think in a maybe a six-month period, they saw 3,300 patients. And those patients were largely IEDs, gunshots, trauma. No one had thought about doing research at this point. Although during Vietnam, there had been a research capability, but it wasn't anywhere in our doctrine. So we started to think about how can we set up a system to allow us to conduct it, to at least do observational research in theater. Now, the 31st was then. They collected, they kept meticulous records, and they brought those records home with them. And then they began to mine those records. Now, that was a six-month snapshot. However, others who were planning to deploy, they would think about, well, I have an idea for a research idea. I think I'll go to the BAMSI IRB and get it approved and take it with me. Well, that didn't work because BAMSI had no authority over theater in Martin Madigan or any other um, medicine IRB. So we started to look at what would be feasible. And this was really an amazing story, I think, of a consortium of people who were dedicated to this idea. And, and really, these folks were, there were a number of folks. They were the commander of the ISR. There was me. There was Paul Quartz, who was front and center for this whole stand-up of this process. At that time, he was the director of health policy and services at OTSG, a really critical role. There was the director of the clinical investigation regulatory office, Mike Lamille, who you probably know, but he was kind of a legend, a Vietnam medical hero. And then there was the director of investigation at BAMC. General Schoolmaker was at was the CG at MRMC. Paul Volpe was the assistant surgeon general for force projection. Are you allowed to use names here? Okay. And then General Kiley was the surgeon general at that time. So what we kind of laid was what is the what are what are the bones of a human research protection program? And the first one is that you have to have a process for writing protocols and scientific review of those protocols, ethical review of those protocols, and qualified teams to implement those and having and have something called an assurance. An assurance is a document, it's like a contract, where the assured institution attests to the fact that they're going to follow the ethical rules for the conduct of research. And it took a little while, but we were able to craft and assurance issued by the Army, signed by the Army Surgeon General and the Multinational Forces Iraq Commander, the Operational Commander, to set up a, a DOD assurance of compliance. And the Multinational Corps Iraq Surgeon, who was Elder Granger at the time, he was willing to implement this at the based out of the 28th Sport Hospital. Sounds like you had a, a great dream team putting this together. What were the biggest barriers in getting it off the ground? You said it took a while. What, what, what did you run into as far as the headwinds? Well, I would say bureaucracy. It wasn't high on anybody's priority list to establish this. It was really an outlier. There was no precedent for it. But I think we 
we packaged it very professionally and gave our superiors assurance or insurance that we would be vigilant in our oversight of this. And really what we were doing is setting up a system that would protect the safety rights and welfare of those subjects now in research who happened to be in harm's way and in theater. So it was really a novel construct to have this mechanism available. And as I said, we identified the Brook IRB to serve as the Trauma Center IRB, and ISR would conduct the scientific reviews. And then the Task Force 44 Medical Commander assigned a the first director of clinical research, Colonel Jennifer Thompson, and that was in 2005. So this was a big breakthrough that would allow us to do certain types of research in theater, like retrospective record reviews, prospective studies. And these prospective studies, as you probably well know better than I, the theater records weren't exactly complete. And there were many things that probably you would record in a research study under direct observation that you might not in a mass cal situation where you're documenting patient care. So this mechanism and allowed us to do that. We quickly realized that even the best intentions of a doc or nurse who was going over into theater to conduct a research study, they had a day job and a night job and research was not going to be their primary focus. So we then lobbied Chief of the Army Nurse Corps, the Surgeon General, to allow us to field what we called a deployed combat casualty care research team. You had mentioned earlier that these signatures took a little while to get obtained. So once once you had this signed agreement that there was going to be an entity, was that the the start of the joint trauma system, or was that the start of the joint theater trauma registry? Like, how did, how did those two entities come to be? So that was a totally separate endeavor. So the trauma community realized, they were familiar with the, United, with the American College of Surgeons Trauma Registry. So this was Don Jenkins, Holcomb, a bunch of others who recognized that we needed to be recording and documenting in a registry. This wasn't going to be for research purposes. It was really the beginning of a learning healthcare system with real-time analysis of data with real-time review of cases, sort of an M&M that was happening in real-time and recording this. So they used the U.S. trauma registry as a model they were able to send, these were different people into theater to be registrars. These are nurses, critical care and ED nurses. And that was a kind of a parallel effort that began at the same time. When these teams went over to Iraq to conduct research, who was responsible? Where were they assigned? Were they assigned to the cash, to the medical task force? These are non-doctrinal units. How did that work downrange? Well, and as you can imagine, it was no small feat to get CENTCOM to allow additional people who weren't mission essential at, to them to come into theater. They were assigned to the MTF. We originally started with six personnel. There would be a team leader who was 
generally a doc, maybe critical care or some type intensivist type specialty. We had a nurse PhD go, and then we had a couple care type nurses because they would be used to seeing stuff that you would see in the ED and be able to document it. We had a lab tech and a, who was also an NCO. So it was a small group and the, I think it was Aaron Edgar who was the commander who agreed to not only allow him to be stationed there, but gave us space in the hospital and we were able to send over lab equipment to be able to do things like tags and other lab tests that weren't organic to the Compat Support Hospital. So the deal was, you know, you weren't going to be diva researchers who didn't get your hands dirty. Pretty much every member of the team assumed some patient care responsibilities during the time they were there, whether it was helping build a database for folks who were not clinical run labs if it was a, a lab person, but it was a it was a win-win for the combat support hospital that received him. So you mentioned that there was a mechanism to perform prospective studies in the theater of combat. Can you give us an example of how that worked and what were some of the issues that were made that either an easy process or a difficult process? It was all about the accuracy of documentation. And I will say that most of the studies in theater were not interventional. They were really largely observational and it was really important to get complete records of what was happening. So whether it was the ratio of fresh frozen plasma to RBCs, whether it was looking at fragmentation wounds or patterns of face and neck trauma, how we manage burn injuries, outcomes of blood transfusions was a big focus of attention. And you'll appreciate this, Dr. Causey, looking at damage control vascular surgery and what the cases look like. So a lot of it was just go observe and document so that we can analyze these data. The wound patterns were so different. It wasn't like we could do this kind of observation at Baltimore Shock Trauma. These were unique wounds. They were devastating and very complex. And really, the system was trying to learn as it went. So to me, this was a real learning healthcare system, even in the theater of war. A big accomplishment from the joint trauma system is the theater clinical practice guidelines. And I know that you and your team were involved in the kind of the origin of those. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of how they came to be? What was the need and what kind of ethical considerations did you think of when you were putting together clinical practice guidelines for people in combat? Sure. The hero of that story is Colonel Paul Quartz. There's a lot of heroes of these stories. But as problems, unique problems began to emerge from the JTR, from the observation, from anecdotal reports, it became clear that there needed to be some unique theater guidance on the treatment of wounds or the treatment or the prevention of complications during a prolonged medevac. So Paul Kortz was, as I said before, the director of health policy and services and he had the responsibility to write medical policy for combatant commands. 
So as these reports started coming out, and I think an ethical challenge here is what is an anecdotal report versus what is sufficient data to merit an aggressive prevention or treatment protocol? So the initial guidances came out as all Army action memos. I don't know if you guys remember Alorex. And at first it was DVT prophylaxis on a return medevac. The tourniquet became, and it's got a robust history, there were a number of tourniquets being used in theater. So while there were these devastating IED injuries, the need for tourniquets, the folks back at ISR were doing research and trying to see which tourniquet was the best, easiest, most effective. And they were able to identify a particular type of tourniquet, the tourniquet, the cat tourniquet, and that actually became the standard. There was a Alaract and it got put into soldiers' kits. The hemostatic dressing, as I said before, Kytazan sort of emerged as a winner over quick clot because it was less toxic. There had been an observation of hand burns because folks weren't using fire-resistant gloves, whether they were working with burn pits or whatever. And our burn unit was the one that really picked up the fact that these hand injuries were potentially avoidable. So an Alorac went out on that one. Also during this time, there were a lot of folks publishing articles about what they had observed or interesting cases. And again, this is out of Paul Court's shop. They developed a release of actionable medical information policy memorandum to really address the OPSEC issues of where these injuries occurred, what the mechanism of wounding was, et cetera, because there was this fear that the enemy was honing their lethality. A couple other ones I'll just say that came out of this was the focus on hypothermia prevention and the beginning kind of a CPG on concussion on soldiers. Now it's so evolved, but back then it was just an Alarac that showed the signs and symptoms of concussion and identified some red flags for commanders and for caregivers that might indicate that there was something more serious going on. Paul Quartz wrote a beautiful article really comparing these Alaracs and policies to the ones that were written during Vietnam. It was a pretty amazing experience to be involved with this. With, with clinical practice guidelines, they tend to work a little bit easier in environments where resources are not constrained. But in the combat zone, where you may not have the equipment, personnel, time, uh, or luxury to do them, did you consider that when you were putting out these guidelines that there may be times when people didn't have the stuff or time to do what was supposed to be right and how that would impact them and how they provided care downrange? These weren't like TC3 guidelines. They were very simple, short, and dealt with things like attention pneumothorax, and you should use a longer needle than was in the standard kit. The notion of extremity fasciotomy, because they had been seeing a lot of compartment syndrome during medevac, and it was, this was a tough one because fasciotomy has its morbidity. But on the other hand, you didn't want the patient to be pulseless when they got to Longstool. So I would say that these weren't really resource rich requirements. They were more think about this when you see this. And 
Certainly no one was being graded on their adherence to this. These were more like just evolving clinical suggestions. One of the things that we found in Iraq and Afghanistan was that combat casualty care was being delivered across the theater. And you have a six-person team that's in a theater of operations. What did you do to make sure or help get the data that you needed when the chaos of combat is going on? How did you make sure that you were getting the stuff that you wanted to be recorded at that point of care when it was done? That was the whole point of sending a dedicated team. There was no way. I mean, I'm sure it was hard to stand back and not help. I think they probably did help. But their job was to document and to record and to ensure that we got a complete data set. There was no way to do it with organic assets. The team stayed together. We didn't break them up and send them different places for the most part. Sometimes they visited other medical treatment facilities, but they were really based at, especially in the beginning, they were based in Baghdad. So I, you know, I would just say that that was their reason for being. That's why they were there and their job was to document. I understand that you were also instrumental in developing the first processes to obtain DOD-required waivers and approvals to allow the DOD to conduct and fund hospital trauma research without the advanced consent of the patient. Why was this needed to address critical needs identified during the wars? And can you share some of the highlights of that process? Okay, so the war's going on. We also need to be conducting research that will be give us evidence basis for treatment of pre-hospital care of trauma patients in the ED care. The principle of autonomy and informed consent is is central in research. People have the right to decide if they want to be in a study or not. That becomes impossible when the, what you're studying is a trauma where the person is unable to consent. And in trauma care, it's very difficult to ensure that you'll have a legally authorized representative available at the time you would need to consent a patient to be in the study. So the FDA developed a set of regulations, 21 CFR 50.24, that allow for studies of investigational products to be used without consent of the individual because they're unable to consent. It's a, it's a big process to go through this to get this FDA designation. You have to meet many, many requirements. So our civilian counterparts, the NIH, others, non-DODers, they can do this. They have, it's legal. There's the common rule, which is the set of regulatory requirements for conducting research with humans, allows for this. It's all allowable. However, not in the DOD. DOD has a law called 10 U.S.C. 980, which really prohibited the DOD from conducting or even funding This kind of research to be done without a subject's consent, without a waiver from the Secretary of Defense, and then the SecDef pounded it down to the the service secretaries. So in 2005, again, John Holcomb at the the ISR, together with the, the BAMC trauma unit, wanted to conduct a study of polyheme, which was a hemoglobin blood oxygen carrier. And this was a multi-site study 
Brooke would just be one site in the study. There's a lot of requirements that the FDA has to include that you have to have sessions with the community, do community consultation, get the community's input. And then only after you finish these complicated steps, does the FDA give you your final IND. So the ISR and book were going to be the first place in the DOD that this had ever been done. And so there really wasn't a pathway for this to get approved. So we made one up. And it was through the OTSG, the Surgeon General had to approve it. And then we took it up to the Secretary of the Army. It was a complicated process. In the beginning, Sec Army was concerned that he would be signing a waiver that would take away somebody's right to consent in the study. After I think he appreciated the fact that this research is exactly the kind of research we have to do. And one of the FDA requirements was that the standard, the care standard at the time would not be adequate to really fully treat the problem. When he understood all that, he finally was able to sign the waiver and we were able to conduct that study at Brook. So that took 12 months. And over the rest of the years that I was at MRMC, and they're still doing it now at MRDC, I think they've gotten over 20 studies approved and the processing time is down to about three months. Now, when you have a drug or a new treatment, when you're bringing it to the theater, are you doing it in a double-blind, randomized type of trial, or what kind of research setup is used when you kind of bring something new? Do you compare it randomly to the the standard of care, or how do you do it? So we haven't brought an investigational product to theater to conduct a RCT, randomized controlled study. That that would be in the really hard-to-do box because you would have to have a dedicated staff. You know, I mean, when you're conducting a study in the BAMC-ED trauma unit, you have a dedicated set of research nurses and a protocol and lab capability. That wasn't realistic. The products that we took to theater, those investigational botox, and were for treatment. And that was a different kind of IND, where you really were not collecting research data. You collect safety data, but not the rich research data that you would if you were trying to get a product licensed. You have a couple of abbreviations that we've used over the last about five minutes, which is IND, IDE would be another one. And about four months ago, one of our past guests, Todd Rasmussen, connected us because he told me that you are the military's expert in IND and IDE. Can you just briefly describe for our audience what those two abbreviations stand for and why it's important? Okay, first of all, I am Todd Rasmussen's military expert, not the DOT's. But IND is Investigational New Drug Application. IDE is Investigational Device Exemption. These are categories of investigational products. Those terms have meaning in terms of the FDA submission that you're attempting and the process that you're going to go through to get those either cleared as a device or licensed as a drug. 
so recently you assisted the DOD and worked with the FDA to get freeze-dried plasma to special operation forces. Tell us a little bit about that process. Well, I was part of a team. These are huge teams that work together to help address the needs of the warfighter. In this case, the value of actually using blood products to treat trauma had been well established. And the problem was that they're not portable, they're not durable, they have a cold chain, et cetera. And even in World War II, freeze-dried plasma was the go-to for treatment of traumatic hemorrhage. There was no U.S. manufacturer of freeze-dried plasma, although there are, I think there's one or more companies that are getting close to the finish line on that. However, in Germany and France, they both had licensed freeze-dried plasma products. So SOCOM was really interested in finding out if there was a way we could get one of those products and get an IND for treatment for special operators. And so it began a partnership with MRMC, with the U.S. Army Medical Material Development Activity, with my office to find a way working with the FDA to put together an IND so that, and we call them force health protection INDs, to make that product available. Now, at that time, the term emergency use authorization, which we used liberally during the COVID crisis, it was not an option for anything other than C-burn products. So ChemBio, Rad, and Nuke. It wouldn't have been an option. It wasn't an option at that time for combat casualty care. So this team developed a protocol and worked with the French that ended up to develop a protocol with the FDA's assistance that was practical and doable that allowed USASOC to begin with to pre-consent operators to the potential use of this product in the event that they were uh, hurt. And so pre-consent and then carry the product with them and use it when it was indicated. So the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs was Dr. John Woodson at that time. He had to be on board and he approved it. Then the MRMC IRB approved it and then the FDA allowed it. And subsequently it has been used by other services, special operations commands. And with a change in the law, that occurred with the 21st Century Cures Act, there was an allowance for the combat casualty care products to receive EUAs, and that's what it has today. So in an EUA, if you remember from COVID, it's not an informed consent process that's like running a research or, or treatment protocol. The subjects or the patients are given an information paper about it and they can consent or not consent to use it, but it's a much easier process that allows the use of investigational products. When you look back at your 17 years as director at the Office of Research Protections, when you think about the ethics of conducting medical research, how do you think it's changed? The basics have not changed at all. Ensuring that, in my particular interest with service members who live in a hierarchical system, who 
people are subject to undue influences or, God forbid, coercion. I think that basics are all the same. I think our research community has gotten far more sophisticated. Those people who do human research protections, they realize that the world is not just black and white, that there's many shades of gray and there's many ways to get to compliance and to do it well with full respect for our patients. So I think what's happened is that there's a larger industry and human protections has become a profession. And you find folks from many walks of life, largely from science, at least in in our world, choosing to work in this field of human research protections. So I think we've evolved. Certainly the FDA has evolved in their regulations in 2018. The common rule was updated to reflect the reality of conducting research in today's world. The first common rule was written when there were largely clinical trials conducted by physicians in a single hospital. Now it is a far different situation. Are there any special rules for military service when it comes to the baseline aspects like the common rules? We have a reg called DOD I-3216.02. It is the DOD's implementation of the common rule that does add some additional protections. For example, if I were going to recruit folks in a group setting for a greater than mental risk study, I would need to ensure that there, none of their command chain is in the room and that there's not weak, weak, not, not, let's be good soldiers and, and help these people out and participate then it is fully the individual's decision whether or not they want to participate. So we have rules around those kind of additional protections. We also have some interesting new rules that came out a couple of years ago around the collection of large-scale genomic data that looks at the security risk of persons holding identifiable genomic data for our, our forces. So there's some controls around that. So yes, the DOD adds a a couple other layers of protection above and beyond what the common rule provides. Your current position is Assistant Vice President in the Research Initiatives and Compliance Office at Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences. Tell us a little bit about that job and and your role there. This was my capstone assignment. This was really an honor to get asked to join this team. And I oversee things like human research protections, animal care, institutional biosafety, the use of anatomic materials. And we ensure that our students and our faculty, because we have a robust research enterprise at USU, are compliant with all the regulatory requirements and knowledgeable about them. So it was a great place for me to take all I'd learned during my 16 and a half years at MRMC and be able to help the next generation of researchers and work with an incredible team to support research. When you look back across your military career, what is it that you would want people to remember about your contributions to military medicine? Well, first of all, I'm extremely proud to have been an Army nurse and never miss an opportunity to try to recruit folks into this amazing profession. So that first and foremost. And then I think 
the fact that I worked with teams that made a real difference in delivering research solutions to the warfighter, even when it required extraordinary efforts, like not taking no for an answer, like persistence and doing the right thing, even when it was really, really hard. And I want to be remembered that we keep the ethical conduct of research front and center all the time. We've been speaking with Dr. Laura Broch on WarDoc's podcast. Laura, thanks for sharing your experiences and insights with us, and thank you for your service to the nation. Thank you for having me. As I said, it was a real honor. Thank you for listening to WarDocs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. WarDocs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts, and rate and review this episode, and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team WarDocs on WarDocsPodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, WarDocs has you covered. Spread the word.